Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of the Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keefley, and today we are speaking with Dr. Erica Carlson. Dr. Carlson is a 150th anniversary professor of physics and astronomy at Purdue University. Dr. Carlson holds a BS in physics from Caltech, as well as a PhD in physics from UCLA. She is a theoretical physicist, and as such, Dr. Carlson researches electronic phase transitions in novel materials. In 2015, she was elected to be a fellow of the American Physical Society with, in recognition of her work, and she has been a member of the faculty at Purdue University since 2003. Now, in addition to her academic and scientific achievements, Dr. Carlson also is involved in the life of the church and its mission. She serves as faculty advisor for Crew and Ratio Christi, both well-known college campus ministries. She occasionally does speaking engagements on the intersection of Christianity and science for apologetic organizations such as Reasons to Believe and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Now, Here at Southeastern, the Center for Faith and Culture has had the pleasure of recently hosting Dr. Carlson for two lectures. The first one was Reductionism, Emergence, and Freedom, Are We Bound by the Laws of Physics? And then the evening lecture was, Can I Ask That in Church? How Wrestling with Tough Questions Help Students' Faith Thrive at the University. And both of these recordings can be found at our website at theintersectproject.org. Today, she is joining us to share about her faith journey as a Christian in the field of physics. So thank you for being with us today, Dr. Carlson. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, we so enjoyed having you speak on our campus, even though it was virtual. Um, there, there was such great response. Um, so you are a theoretical physicist. Um, okay, for those of us who are laypersons and we barely know that there is a field called physics, what is a theoretical physicist? What are, you know, in, co in comparison to the other types of, of physicists? Okay, so, so first of all, uh, uh, a physicist, right? Uh, so I'm a scientist, I study nature. Um, and, and since uh, I'm, I'm talking to a, a professor in a seminary, I'll, I'll, I'll say I study the world that God created, right? And it's my privilege to do that. And so as a scientist, I use the scientific method to do that. Um, now, uh, you know, physics uh, is, is broad. My specific field of physics is I study what electrons do inside of solids. We used to call it solid state physics. Then we started calling it condensed matter physics. And now we call it quantum materials. So I study quantum materials. Um, and uh, I use the theory part means that I use math or I use computer simulations in order to describe the way that I think electrons are behaving inside of these materials. And then there's another category of physicist, which is an experimental physicist, by which we mean that someone who goes into a laboratory and performs experiments on these materials, and they find out the way they actually behave. <laughs> and then 
we theorists and experimentalists get together and have conversations. And when we agree, right, when the theoretical predictions that I or my theory colleagues make agree with what they found in an experiment, then we say we've learned something. When they don't agree yet, well, that's why we have conferences and uh, give talks and have vigorous scientific debate. Uh, and we try to meet in the middle and figure out what's going on. So uh, you're doing one important half of the two parts of the scientific method, hypothesis and, and experimentation. Would that be a good way of putting it? Absolutely. And, you know, I've talked to enough philosophers of science to where they've taught me that there are scientific methods, plural, but it, you can you can uh, distill them all into basically what you just said. Number one, have an idea. Number two, test it against the way the world actually works. So yes, theorists work on the idea side, but you have to, at the end of the day, turn it quantitative enough to where someone can test it, right? And so you have to turn it into a prediction that's got numbers on it so that, so that you can directly compare to what happens in a lab. So um, doing science is not, uh, purely or merely an empirical enterprise. I mean, it's not just learning from experience. An experiment is a rational enterprise in which you are using your imagination and your thought processes to conjure up the way the experiment ought to be done. And so that experiment is something very tightly controlled, hopefully. Would that be a good way of putting it? Yeah, ab absolutely. And so uh, in in the uh, collaborations that I have, I, I collaborate with several different experimental groups around the world. Um, and so uh, really, when theory meets experiment, that's where you move the scientific method forward. You have to have the idea, you test it against experiment, you go back now and adjust your idea according to what you just learned from experiment, and you test it again against experiment. And so it's actually an iterative kind of uh, bootstrap way of getting closer and closer and closer to uh, to the truth. Um, and it does, it does progress best when experimentalists and theorists talk to each other. It's no good, in my opinion, okay, so now I'm going to get opinionated about better ways to do science. It's no good when theorists sit in an ivory tower and calculate things that no one can ever measure. I don't think that's moving science along. You really have to make a testable prediction. You're lo looking for a prediction that is in principle falsifiable. What we mean by that is that in principle, someone could go into a lab and measure something that says your theory is wrong, wrong in the sense of it doesn't apply to the system you said it applies to. Speaking of being in conversation with your broader community, you have a YouTube channel. I'll like, why don't you make a plug for it? Sure. What I actually uh, have, have multiple YouTube channels, but uh, the most recent one that I started is youtube.com slash quantum coffee house. So if you look up quantum coffee house, it'll pop up. Um, and this is an, an outreach project of the Purdue Quantum Science and Engineering Institute. And in there, you'll find two series of videos. And some of them I give little five minute snippets of uh, quantum mechanics. At the lay level, it's meant to introduce quantum concepts in little five-minute nuggets that you could enjoy over a cup of coffee. And then the other format is interviews with scientists and engineers who are working on all things quantum. So it's called Quantum Coffee House on YouTube. That's correct. So <clears throat> you are a scientist. You are a professor at Purdue University. You're also a person of faith. Uh, tell us a bit about your faith journey. Uh, and then as, as it segues into your science journey. 
Well, I am very grateful that um, my, uh, my mother took me to church a lot growing up. And uh, in fact, her father is a Southern Baptist minister. Uh, he's gone on to be with the Lord, but uh, that's, our, that's our family heritage is, is uh, Southern Baptist. And so I was raised in churches. And um, when I was uh, four years old is when I became, uh, uh, started a relationship with Christ, right? So, you know, God bless the Sunday school teachers, you have impact. And so in my, you know, four-year-old Sunday school class, the Sunday school teacher had taught us enough um, about Jesus to where I knew Jesus was wonderful and loves kids. And I could see, even at that age, I could see that the people who follow Christ treat children with more love and more respect than people who don't. So when the Sunday school teacher said, hey, you know, invite Christ into your heart, here's how you do it. Of course I did. And in fact, I was saved 52 times that year. Every single Sunday I prayed the prayer because I didn't, you know, my four-year-old theology didn't realize that once was good, it stuck, right? So I wanted to be sure. Um, and then of course, as my, as my faith grew and progressed, then, you know, I needed to go deeper, obviously, and learn more. Um, the way that starts interacting with, with sciences, uh, you know, I kind of feel like all children start off as scientists, uh, and, uh, you know, because why all children break things, right. And they like to know how things work. And I think we all discover a lot of things about how the world works just by playing with it. When you were playing with balls as a kid, you were learning science about gravity, right? <laughs> when you were jumping up and down, you were learning science. When you were spinning around so many times that you got dizzy and fell over, you were learning science. You were learning about circular acceleration very, very cool stuff. And so I feel like we all learn a lot of science just naturally by playing with our environments. And so um, for me, that combined with the fact that my dad loves science and is a good teacher of science, I would just follow my dad around in the basement while he would tinker with things, you know, solder stuff together and tell me how the world works and do some chemistry and you know, teach me how things go. And, you know, it's not like my dad ever sat me down and said, Erica, we're going to learn some science right now. He would just tell me cool stuff about how the world works. And of course it was awesome. So you kind of can't help but become a scientist raised by my dad. <laughs> um, so, so these two worlds, uh, you know, I never saw a problem with them until I was in high school. When I was in high school, I started, you know, asking those persnickety questions that the smart kids like to ask in church. Um, very politely, though, you know, I, I needed to know truth, right? And so I was starting to hear kind of some echoes in our society that science and faith might not be compatible. And I started asking those questions in church, and my my wonderful Sunday school teacher did his best to help me, <laughs> but um, but you know, gave me some unfortunate answers that actually undermined my faith. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, God is faithful. Uh, I took my questions to God. That was a hard time. I took my questions to God and he, over time, brought people into my life who could speak into those areas, right? Christian mentors who could speak into those areas in my life um, and, and help me learn more things. And so when I went deep enough on the issue, rather than undermining my faith, it made my faith so much stronger, so much stronger, in fact, that, that I, I love the opportunity to share those things that I learned with other people. So one of the lectures you gave was, uh, can you ask that in church? Um, your, 
your experience with your Sunday school teacher. I notice, and I've heard you speak about uh, this teacher more than once, and I appreciate how careful you are to present this teacher in a positive light, that this teacher intended to be a help and to a benef be a benefit, even if the outcome wasn't that. In other words, if this actually, that, that, uh, uh, that teacher's help may have actually precipitated the crisis or, or, or accelerated or, or accentuated it, whatever way you wanna say it. I think that for the, a lot of our listeners, um, that resonates with them and their concerns because they are teachers, they are Sunday school teachers or small group leaders, or they are the parents of very bright kids growing up who've got a lot of questions. And the last thing they wanna do is more damage than good. Uh, they, 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 I think that many times um, the way that they respond is a response of anxiety, maybe even fear, because they don't feel qualified in this area. So as someone who went through that journey, uh, what advice would you give to a, a, a lay parent or small group leader who they are not scientists and they know they're not scientists, but they love people of science and they, they have people in their lives uh, that, that are going into to the STEM fields. What advice would you have for them? What would you, what would you say to them? How, 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 would you, how would you encourage them to go about it? Right, okay. So how to go about it, first of all, is humility. Bottom line have humility. It's okay to not know all the answers. It's okay to not be able to tie the bow on everything. Um, and, and to humbly admit when, when there's things we don't know and there's room for us to learn more, that's totally fine. Um, and in, in fact, scientists are quite comfortable with partial knowledge. We move forward on partial knowledge all the time. That's what, you know, that, why are we still doing research? It's because we don't know everything yet. <laughs> Right, otherwise you're done. <laughs> so we do research on the boundaries of knowledge, but you know, there's stuff we know, but we don't know everything, it's, it's okay. And um, I am comfortable saying that in my Christian faith that I know a lot, but I don't know everything and that's okay. I don't have to know everything in order to make the decision that you know, I should follow Christ. Um, you know, really quick way to address this is to think about God's perspective on it, right? I mean, as a university professor, I encounter a lot of young people who come to college, you know, as freshmen, and uh, they, they learn something new at the university that challenges their faith. And what I remind them all of, it doesn't matter what it was, there is no new knowledge that you will learn at the university that surprises God. Nothing, okay? If it's actually true, God already knows it. <laughs> If it's not true, he knows that's wrong. Okay, but here's the deal. God knows all that stuff already and he hasn't stopped believing in himself, right? God knows more science than we do and it hasn't made him stop believing in himself. So don't be afraid of the truth. And you know, by all means, go deeper in your faith to where you're confident in, in, in the truth. Um, I think it's also extremely important uh, to create spaces in churches where people can ask questions in, 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 a, in a way that's, um, that's uh, welcoming to the question asker, right? If we wanna be um, a, a body of believers who uh, spreads the light to other people, 
we have to let them ask questions. If we want to strengthen the faith of believers, we have to let people ask questions. If you look at how Jesus interacts with his audiences, there's questions. He poses questions to the listeners. The listeners pose questions to him. Jesus uh, didn't reject people for asking questions. He was happy uh, and comfortable with, with the public debate. Um, so I think that's also important. In fact, my Southern Baptist heritage was a huge strength in this. All right, along the following lines. Um, I, I was actually, I moved around a lot growing up, but we were always in Southern Baptist churches. And so I experienced a lot of different Southern Baptist churches. But one of the things that I appreciated was this, this idea that there's a core set of theology that makes these churches Southern Baptist. And other areas of theology were not in the core and that church members were free to disagree on those. That was a huge strength to me when in having this crisis of, of science and faith and how they fit together, because that allowed me essentially, I like to think of it as shock absorbers, you know, like I meet these students who come to come to college as freshmen and it's like they're driving a, a, a theology car that's made of glass, you know, and if it hits a bump in the road, the whole thing just explodes, right? They didn't have any shock absorbers. So I think it was a tremendous strength just to have the idea in hand that Christians don't agree on the answers to everything, okay? There are details of theology that Christians disagree about. And uh, so it doesn't mean there's no answer. It means there's multiple answers. We're just not sure which, which is the right one. And that was a tremendous strength to me in, in being able to address that. So I, I, I love to encourage churches to create those places, you know, for whatever denomination you're in, there's some theological question in your church that you would feel comfortable having multiple views discussed on. And it's an opportunity to train believers in how to maintain the unity of the spirit, even when you disagree. But what you're doing for the young people in your church is you are giving them shock absorbers for their faith that make them stronger as they go out into the world and learn new things. I, I really like how you put that, that by going to a variety of Southern Baptist churches, you discovered that there were those core beliefs, and then there were the things about which we've agreed to disagree, or we've agreed that we don't have a final answer. A lot of people are, are surprised to find that the Baptist faith and message, uh, for example, which has a very high view of scripture, and, it's, and it, it really does teach Baptist distinctives. Yet on the other hand, there are areas in which it graciously allows, for example, it doesn't, it's not dogmatic on the age of the earth. It's not dogmatic about which eschatological system you're going to hold to, pre-mill, post-mill, or a-mill. It's not even dogmatic about how many points of Calvinism uh, a person will or will not hold to. So I, I really like the point that you're making that it's all right that in certain areas where good people disagree, a variety or a smorgasbord of options is is a is a wise course of action, and I, and it's interesting to hear you say that scientists move forward uh, with partial knowledge all of the time. I think that that's a very helpful thing. You also said that you were the kid that tore things apart and broke them down, you know, to find out how they worked, which brings us to uh, the way science is done, and I think that reductionism has been. A, an incredibly successful method uh, in doing science in that, uh, you know, you break it down to its constituent parts and that you find out that, you know, everything that you thought was this turns out these are the subsequent parts that make it happen. Um, 
reductionism is has been very effective, but it's also a little dangerous whenever you start making metaphysical claims that every that everything we see is nothing but regardless if it's the, everything from the human soul to 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 matters that we would see as metaphysical or transcendent you gave a great talk on reductionism and uh, a concept of emergence could you talk to us a little bit about why reductionism has been so successful in science but it doesn't answer everything and now science is also talking about emergence Okay, great question. Uh, and it depends a little bit about which field of science you're in. All right. So the, the reductionist idea is that, hey, I'm going to learn about the world by breaking things into their smallest bits. I'll find out what the bits are, how the bits work, and then that'll help me answer the questions. And we, you know, we got a lot of mileage out of that, right? We, that's how particle physics has, has come about, right? We, we took matter, broke it up into atoms, then we say, oh, that's great. We've learned something. Then we took the atoms, smashed them to bits and found out what's inside of those. And turns out some of those bits have bits inside of them. And we keep, you know, drilling down. And so that's, that's the reductionist paradigm leads you to that kind of idea that, that you'll find the deepest and truest things by breaking things into their smallest pieces. Um, the, the, the problem comes when you then think you'll be able to reconstruct everything and get the large scale behavior back. Um, so what we find is that not all the important questions can be answered with reductionism. So for example, if you try to answer the question of why is water wet? Well, okay, so first of all, let's take water that's at room temperature and pressure and, and then it'll be liquid water. So give me liquid water. Why is liquid water wet? Well, if you break it down into its molecules and you go looking for wetness inside of a single water molecule, you will not find it. It's not there, okay? Um, and you know, if I give you two water molecules, they're not wet yet. It's not until you get a large collection of them that this property of wetness presents itself. So there are certain phenomena that, that are not discoverable until we have a large enough collection of particles. Wetness is an example. Hardness is an example. Actually, temperature is not something that's well-defined unless you have a large enough thing. Turns out we even have trouble defining the arrow of time unless we have enough mm. particles involved. Um, mm. So there are certain things that, uh, that are emergent in, in the sense of they become evident in a collection, in a collection of particles, like a water wave. A water wave is, is emergent. Can a single water molecule do the wave? Not really. It can wiggle back and forth, but nobody's going to look at a single molecule wiggling back and forth and call it a wave. You would just say it's wiggling, right? But, but a wave is a collective phenomenon. So lots of things like that come up, especially in my field. Um, we are, our field you know, studies phases of matter and phase transitions. And I specifically study phases of matter and phase transitions of electrons inside of solids. And we find that these large scale behaviors that come up in large collections of particles give us lots of rich physics that, um, that we wouldn't be able to discover without the large collection of particles. So an example is, um, is a metal. You know, you're using, anybody listening to this is using metal. Somewhere, somewhere you have a power cord. Inside the power cord is copper. Copper is metallic. The reason you're using it is because it carries current and it's the thing that carries the energy into your device to recharge it. Um, I have studied a lot superconductors. Superconductors are like metals on steroids. So we like metals because they conduct well. They still lose energy when they do it. It's like they, they leak energy out, okay? Um, superconductors carry current perfectly. 
And it's a fantastic phase of matter, right? It's actually, you know, a new phase of matter that the electrons are doing together. They do something explicitly quantum together and they produce this superconducting state that has what we call zero resistance. And it's a quantum effect, it's lovely, but it's a quantum effect that's happening in a large collection of particles. You can't give me one electron and tell me it's superconducting, it's not. You have to have a whole chunk of material before you can see that property. So in my field, uh, uh, we are very much in the business of describing emergence and we have uh, experimental tools for finding it. We have lots of hardcore mathematics for describing exactly what we mean by emergence. Uh, and so it's a great, you know, if you're interested in philosophy of science, I would recommend solid state, condensed matter systems for understanding the concept of emergence because it's, we have such a good handle on it in my field. Um, and I think it brings up, you know, ideas of, um, you know, even what does it mean to be human, right? I, I, I get very sad seeing certain, you know, certain reductionistic concepts applied in society. Sometimes society invites us, secular society that is, invites us to view each other as nothing more than a collection of atoms or nothing more than a collection of DNA. And I, I think we diminish ourselves when we do that. Um, and so concepts in emergence can, can, in my opinion, give us guidance to help us remember important things such as observations made on large scale are also significant. You know, the large scale, high level observation that um, I really do make decisions in life, you know, between say chocolate or vanilla ice cream or triple chocolate brownie chunk and, you know, pumpkin spice ice cream, a much harder decision. That that's a real decision um, that you're not gonna find in my DNA. You're not gonna be able to read my DNA off ever, ever and predict which one I'm gonna choose that day because they're both good flavors of ice cream. So I think, I think emergence as it comes up in my field can give you a platform for, for discussing those larger questions. So would a good analogy of emergence be sort of like an impressionistic painting that if you, if you zoom in at the particular dabs of paint, you're not gonna understand what it is. But then when you zoom out, there's this gestalt that happens and you see that it is a painting of a, of a lake or whatever it is that the image is. Is that somehow analogous to what you're talking about? I like that analogy a lot. I like that analogy a lot. And you could do it with a painting, you could do it with, with a printout, right? When you print things from your printer, it's actually putting little dots. You could do it with your screen right now. If you're looking at a screen anywhere, it's using little points of light. And so it's the points combined together that, that give you the whole picture. And even better than an impressionistic painting would be the pointillism movement, right? You remember this one? So this is where they, they would do little, they were, they were influenced by science. They were learning things about how vision, color vision operates. And so the painters experimented with putting little, little points of color that weren't the actual color, but when you looked back from a distance, the colors blended and created the new color in a composite yeah. manner. That's another example of, of emergence. So emergence is a, I, I also find the very concept of emergence fascinating. And the way you've explained it, 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 it is something that, a phenomena that once, you know, it's sort of one of those things, once someone explains it, you can't unsee it. You, you now, you, now you, 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 you notice it uh, happening all the time. Right. There well, are. I want to be really clear that I, I don't think that emergence is the answer to describing why humans are like we are. 
That, but I, I was about to go. I was about yeah. to head there. Okay. Yeah, because, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because well, because you know, you, there are those philosophers of science and theology who appeal to emergence one way or another for, and, and some of them do a better job than I think than others. They will often make a distinction between uh, a modest or weak emergence and a bold or strong emergence in which it's one thing to say, okay, when ice freezes, it creates this new level, you know, this, these crystalline structures and we can call them snowflakes if you want. Uh, that's one level of emergence. It's another thing to say, this is the way that life began, or this is the way that consciousness originated. And, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to have that, those kinds of conversations um, uh, about how, uh, you know, life really truly is embedded in the physical world or how consciousness really does depend upon the brain. But, it's there's a leap here that simply giving it a label is not the same thing as explaining what's going on here uh is you know so is that a, is that what you were getting at where you say i you know that it doesn't explain as much as people try to sometimes get it to explain right that's that's where i was heading i actually I actually have a short article at veritas.org on this how reductionism and emergence and and even now we need to think about transcendence would be the next idea so yeah. uh so as you say weak emergence that would be what's what's what i was describing that's in my field where we can put mathematics to it and we understand exactly what's happening okay um the mathematics if you're curious and want to read up on it the mathematics of emergence is encapsulated very well by what's called renormalization group Ken Wilson got the Nobel Prize for that, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But suffice it to say, we have hardcore mathematics to guide us in this field. So I think we learn a few lessons from emergence that can help us think more broadly and, and get us to the idea as well of transcendence. So, so one of the lessons we learn is take high-level observations seriously. They are meaningful. It is a meaningful observation that my glass of water is wet. It is a meaningful observation when I see that water can carry a wave. I, you know, these are meaningful observations. Um, another take home message is that reductionism can't explain why the high level behavior occurred. You, you know, you can't give me a single water molecule and tell me everything about that water molecule and explain why a collection of them becomes wet. You can't study a single electron and tell me why certain hunks of material become superconducting. Reductionism doesn't answer those questions. So reductionism can't explain everything. We also learn, okay, that causality can enter at a higher level. So the reductionism idea taken too far and, and saying, well, that's all there is and I'll learn everything by reducing everything to its tiniest bits is the idea that all the causality comes from the bottom up, okay? And yet we know that's not the case, even to go into these labs and make these experiments. You know, none of my colleagues who are, who are probing the quantum world and answering questions about the foundations of quantum mechanics in their lab, none of them think that the experiment was actually designed by the quantum particles who told them to do it. The experimenters always think they're the ones setting things up. So <clears throat> what we learn from that is that causality can enter at a higher level. These are lessons that we can learn in the context of weak emergence that can help us then formulate how we should think about other things. So 
uh, I think transcendence is a real thing, you know. So, <clears throat> for example, once you take high-level observations seriously, now you have some language in hand to start discussing things that are transcendent, not emergent. So here's an example. Um, I like the layout of my house. I hope you like the layout of your house or apartment or, you know, what, what, whatever uh, the listeners are, are, are living in. Um, but no one would walk into, the, into, your, into your home and say, oh, look at how the kitchen flows so nicely into the living area. It must be because it's made of bricks. Mm -hmm. No, no one, no one thinks it's because of the bricks. You could have made it out of bricks. You could have made it out of stone. You could have made it out of wood. Nowadays, you could probably use some recycled plastic material to make it. And so it's not arising from the constituents. In the case of a floor plan of a, of a house, there's something transcendent. There's, there's the designer. You know, you don't walk into a Frank Lloyd Wright designed house and, and, and say, oh, it was just the bricks. You know, you know that, uh, that something was imprinted onto, uh, on, onto the constituents. So in the last minute or two that we have, um, young people are encouraged to enter into the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and math. Uh, as someone who is very much involved in that world, what advice, advice or encouragement would, would you have to the young Christian man or, or woman, young Christian teenager thinking about going into the STEM fields? How, how, how should they be preparing spiritually for this adventure? First of all, I'd like you to know that it's a valid Christian calling to be called to be a scientist or an engineer or working in a STEM field. I have been called by God to be a scientist, and, and I believe I have been called by him to be a, a professor at a secular university for several reasons. Some, some of it is just the plain old strategic reason of as Christians, we should be salt and light in the world, and society needs a Christian witness. We cannot have an effective Christian influence on society if we're not showing up. You have to show up. And you're not going to influence certain areas without their credentials. So earn those credentials and get into those areas and influence society. If God is putting it on your heart to go, to go run for public office, okay, you know, take that seriously. Get the training you need. Do it. You know, if God is putting it on your heart to be an engineer, because you want to invent things that will revolutionize the world and raise the standard of living of little children in Africa, do it. This is a this is a calling from God. So be open to that. Um, you know, you've got to pray it pray it through. No one can pray it through for you. You have to you have to be in conversation with God about that. But I want to affirm that it's it's an actual calling, um, and and part of the reason I want to affirm that. To you is because I had trouble getting support from my churches about that when I was a young mm. person figuring out the way to go. Um, they had a, they didn't quite have, how do I say this? They didn't understand the calling, okay? They didn't understand that it could be a holy pursuit to spend all my nights and weekends studying physics. Surely I should be out witnessing to people. <laughs> so, so they, they had a little bit trouble with the work ethic, for example. Uh, I mean, it's a, I'm, it's a high work ethic to be a scientist. Uh, you, you gotta, you gotta pay your dues. You gotta, you have a lot to learn <laughs> and, it, and the problems are hard and it takes time to solve. Um, and, and so, you know, I just want to affirm that it, it can, it can be a valid Christian calling. And if God is calling you to that, understand that not only does society need your Christian witness 
in that area. But also you're carrying out the, 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 one of the first commandments that God gave people, right? Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the species of this earth. To rule over the species of this earth wisely, we need to learn how the world works. That's what STEM is all about, right? Is learning how the world works and transferring that into technologies that benefit the species of this planet, including human beings. We have been listening to Dr. Erica Carlson. She is a theoretical physicist at Purdue University. We've been talking to her about a life of science and of faith. This is the Christ and Culture Podcast. This, I'm, my name's Ken Keefley. Hoping you're having a great day.